Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And today we're taping a very special episode because once again we are live in Columbia, Missouri at the Unbound Book Festival. In front of thousands in a very large arena. <laughs> so wait, what did you do last night? Did you play Madden as usual? I definitely usual? played Madden last night. I am a complete Madden addict, a freak, a maniac. I've seen this. I, have you actually seen I it? Have you, yeah, I, did I, I show you all the plays? I have stacks of, of plays that I've all written out for my team, <laughs> offense and defense. He was like, sit here, watch this. It's oh, going to yeah. be really fun for you. She was very bored. <laughs> you were really good at it. It's an incredible play. It's the first, my first really serious react, uh, relationship with a video game. Uh, my son, got, I started playing because my son wanted to play with me. It was a way for us to interact. And I became completely obsessed that he has since quit um, and does not like playing with me at all. Well, I can attest to the obsession having witnessed it. So I'm curious, does Madden have any influence on your writing? Do you think that playing is maybe a kind of storytelling or a kind of reading? I think it's something that's like a cognitive thing that's similar to writing where it's like my helping my brain do processing. My brain likes to do high level, like it likes to process. All brains like to process, right? But and it's more active for me than watching television, but it's not writing, and so it's a relaxation or a release from writing. It's a kind of play. And that play, I think, is really important for adult humans, or as kids, it's known to be important for kids, but I don't think adults get enough play. Well, I can think of three people who will be even better at answering this question than us, and we have them with us today. Uh, three guests who write about video games as part of Unbound's Ready Player One session. So first we have Andrew Irvin, the author of the novels Burning Down George Orwell's House and Extraordinary Renditions. That's a great title, though. Burning yeah. Down George Orwell's House. I'm going to go read that. I haven't read that. Um, Andrew has written essays and reviews for the New York Times Book Review, the Washington Post, San Francisco Chronicle, Salon, and others. He is here today to discuss his nonfiction book, Bit by Bit, How Video Games Transformed Our World. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me here. Uh, and I do write for LitHub. I'm a huge fan. Oh, okay, good. Uh, next, Brittany Morris is the best-selling author of Slay and the Cost of Knowing. She has written video game narratives uh, that video game narrative for Insomniac Games Spider-Man 2 for PlayStation 5, Unknown Worlds Subnautica Below Zero, and Soma Games The Lost Legends of Redwall. I love Redwall. I have not played. That sounds cool. Uh, Brittany is an NAACP Image Award nominee and an Ignite Award finalist, and she holds a BA in economics. Today she's here to talk to us about her young adult novel, The Jump. Brittany, thanks for joining us. And, for having me. And our third guest, B.J. Best, is the author of two previous books of poetry, Birds of Wisconsin and State Sonnets. He is also the author of three chapbooks, most recently the prose poem collection Drag, 20 short poems about smoking. He teaches at Carroll University and asserts he is the only person in the world who has beaten Super Mario Brothers with an actual Nintendo and television on a pontoon boat. <laughs> He is here to talk with us about his third poetry collection, But Our Princess is in Another Castle. BJ, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So, Andrew, uh, according to your book, 67% of American homes have video games of some kind. So I'm not the only father who's out there <laughs> playing Madden at 11 o'clock drinking white wine. 
Um, to give our audience a little context, I'd love to hear the three of you talk about your respective first experiences playing video games. How old were you? What were the games? Brittany, you want to start off for us? Sure, I'll start off. Um, my very first experience playing a video game was actually supposed to, it was supposed to be a nature excursion. My dad is a marine biologist. He's one of those nature people. Apologize to all the nature people in the room. I am not one. I am sorry. Uh, but he took us to the Oregon coast where he thought we would spend a weekend, you know, petting the anemones and learning about sharks. And at the, uh, yeah, at the uh, house we were staying at, there was a Nintendo 64. And that got all of our attention. Uh, we played Mario way too late into the evening. Every single day we were there. He could barely get a word in. Uh, the schedule became ours. Um, that was my very, very first experience playing a video game. And it, it really made the whole weekend for me personally. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. BJ, how about you? So my first video, video game experiences were were with a home computer, which is kind of a, a more obscure one. It was an also ran to the Commodore 64. It was made by Texas Instruments. If you are of a younger age, you probably had a TI calculator and in math class somewhere. Um, it, and those go up to 98 or something like that. This was the TI 99. Um, and it was the sort of thing that you got where you were also supposed to learn how to program. So my parents thought it was vaguely educational as well. Um, but it had games that no other system had. One of my favorites was called Alpiner, and it's you're climbing a mountain um, and that sort of thing. There was a Pac-Man clone. It was called Munchman. Uh, <laughs> real clever. <laughs> um, and other things. And so it was kind of a weird entry into to video games for me. But um, similarly, I feel my true entry was the glorious Christmas of 1986 when my parents couldn't even wait until Christmas Day, or maybe I was so pestering about what was in that large box. And in that large box was a Nintendo Entertainment System. And on Christmas Eve, there I am playing Mario on the old porch of our house in December, which is freezing in Wisconsin, <laughs> um, playing Mario and just being amazed and blown away that this is the future of video games. Uh, I, I was indoctrinated a little bit earlier. Uh, I think I was in late elementary school, school early middle school, uh, when the arcade cabinet started showing up. Uh, the su local supermarket would have one, the drugstore would have one, and you didn't really have much choice, like you, you were, that was the game you were going to play. So you would, you know, uh, I would go do some chores and get a couple quarters, and uh, the games were really difficult, um, and you had to spend a long time learning to get anywhere. So it'd be like, you know, uh, three or four minutes of, of great entertainment, and then I was out of money. Um, <laughs> Uh, what year is this like Galaga or uh, yeah, Centipede? Probably, probably around then, yeah, I would okay. guess so. Um, so yeah, I, I started with those and then um, my parents were the sort where video games were frivolous, which even if that were true, and it's not, but even if it were true, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with joy for the sake of joy. Uh, unless you're my parents. <laughs> uh, so we did have a Commodore VIC-20 uh, on which uh, we, I would play um, text-based games, Pirate Cove Adventure and, and those sorts of things. Uh, and so I'm so, sure that becoming a, a writer kind of started with, uh, with those simple commands. So my parents also, I think, thought video games were frivolous. And the origin story of video games in our house was that we were not allowed to have a Nintendo. And then my brother sort of very cleverly went and asked our friend's parents for that for Christmas. And then they got it. <laughs> 
he got in big trouble, but we kept it. <laughs> so I think one of the things I learned from reading your all of your work is that you know the, all of these games that I didn't know about. You know, there's a poem about Munchman in in BJ's collection, and um, I just learned about sort of a, a style of play and also a way of thinking about play. I appreciate that that pleasure for pleasure's sake, um, that it is a way of relaxing. And uh, BJ, I thought that maybe you could read a poem that features a classic character from um, another game, one that everyone I think in the audience knows. I wonder if you would read Pac-Man for us. I would be delighted. <laughs> so uh, this is uh, from the book, um, But Our Princess is in Another Castle, and it's a book of prose poems inspired by uh, classic video games. And they aren't about the video games per se, um, and I view them as ekphrastic poems. And ekphrastic poems are poems that are written in response to art. Um, and most commonly, it's, it's visual art. Um, there's an Anne Sexton poem about Starry Night. There are two famous poems about uh, the fall of Icarus um, and things like that. And so I took that approach in thinking about that. And I usually share something about the game of Pac-Man is pretty famous. Uh, the one thing you might not remember if you haven't played it recently is that there are four ghosts, and they all have names. And they're named in the poem here. <laughs> so this is Pac-Man. At five, I wanted to believe in ghosts. A man who had lived in my room, my parents told me, was caught in a storm on the lake, hair now standing shocked for eternity. But Wisconsin summers, when the thunder marched in, hushing the thrum of crickets, the lightning was ridiculous as a flashbulb, like the moon throwing a surprise party, but too dumb to know when to stop yelling, surprise. <laughs> Then this game, ghosts adorable as orphans, raveling clothes and blue eyes lolling around their big heads, stammering through blank alleys at night. Oh, Inky, Pinky, Blinky, and Clyde, who is God? What is death? Where is Wisconsin? Are you my mother? A farm was a mile away by bike, corn and cows. I wanted to keep touching that electric fence. Thank you. This brings up an idea that I wanted to ask all of you about, um, which is, it was interesting the way you're talking about the Commodore. Like, I hear people talk about certain gaming systems nostalgically. It, you know, like, that is not traditionally thought of as, like, video game tech or graphics as being the things that we're nostalgic for, the things we're used to traditionally being nostalgic for. is like the sled in Citizen Kane. Okay, you can be nostalgic for a sled, but can you yeah. be nostalgic for a Commodore? Like, video game. But I want you to talk about, I think that that's the thing that we are going to be nostalgic about. Like, I think mm. you can be nostalgic about certain graphic interfaces or certain mm. games. What do you think, BJ? We'll start with you and then everyone could answer. Oh, absolutely. And Andrew and I were actually talking about this a little bit uh, last night, that part of the experience of playing a video game is the physical experience of playing it. And that involves holding that particular controller, that awfully pointed old Nintendo controller that hurts your hands after a while, or the, the satisfying rubber of an Atari joystick that moves around. Um, and whatever people grow up with is what they wind up being nostalgic for, right? And so my kid, who forces me to play like the Browns, as the Browns or the Lions, and he gets to be Tom Brady and the Patriots anytime I play Madden with him. That's a good idea. <laughs> she tried the Chiefs. You know, he'll be, he'll be nostalgic for the PS4 and the Switch, but I think the physical connection, and even like the graphics, right? 
some people are real purists about playing an old video game on an old TV because that's the right way to play it. Um, and you can argue about whether or not that's true, but the nostalgia of this is me growing up, I think is real strong, even though the entertainment itself lives in the circuits. Brittany, you have anything you want to add? Or, and then we'll, talk, we'll hear from Andrew. Personally, I mean, when I, when I was growing up, my first console was the Nintendo GameCube. So I, I remember, I mean, I know what the controller feels like. The L&R controls just, uh, they've gotten worse. <laughs> the trigger controls. I, I could talk a whole hour about just that. Um, but for me personally, I'm also very nostalgic about the people that I used to play with. Um, there are so few couch co-op games now. A lot of it is like MMOs, online multiplayer games, um, or single player games. There aren't a whole lot of two player, four player, like local, they have to, they, they're in the room with you, games anymore. Um, so that's something I'm personally nostalgic for and I hope that comes back um, economically. I, would, I can't figure out why it would, but <laughs> I hope it does one day. Um, and as an aside, I'm also personally nostalgic for console prices. <laughs> uh, when we got our Nintendo GameCube, it was $99, and you got a free copy of Super Mario Sunshine. Oh, wow. Yeah, now mm. we're up to five fifty. dollars yeah. <laughs> I had to buy the PS5 like on the black market. <laughs> Andrew? I'm a little bit suspicious of nostalgia, um, because it's, it's, I'm more interested in the way the gaming technology changed the way, or what kind of stories we can tell. But when there's one joystick and one button, there's only so much uh, that the, the creator of the game can, can have us do. The, the button can't do multiple things. It can do one thing. Uh, and then all of a sudden, we got this flowering as the, the controllers got a little bit bigger, the NES controller. Um, and to, to Brittany's great point, the, this massive thing we now have in our hands now, which you, know, you have to be an octopus to, to sort of <laughs> use it effectively, at least, at least I do. Um, but I, I'm, I, if, I, if I'm nostalgic, it's for looking at those shale layers of how the storytelling grew based on how much memory the creators had. Uh, PS3, for instance, um, which I did not have when it came out, so it's not like I have this emotional connection to that era. Um, but you can see, because they have these uh, big discs all of a sudden, that the storytellers can do so much more. Um, and then by the PS4, the corporations are like, hey, we're going to do that too. And so we got away from the, the individual auteur creators, uh, and it, they became sort of corporate behemoths. So I, I, it's not nostalgia necessarily, but I, I am fascinated by the, the progression. Yeah, I was thinking as I was reading your work about the difference um, between work that's sort of narratives that are teleological, that are aimed at like a, like a findable endpoint and the video games of the more recent past, which honestly I mostly have heard about from my students mm -hmm. who are interested in the complexity of their narratives. And you know, I feel like I, because I was bad at video games, I kind of <laughs> gave up on them. And now they have gained this narrative complexity because they're not as interested in like a one button resolution. Yeah. And what do you all think about that and, and how it has maybe played into also your work? Brittany, do you want to maybe want to take that? Sure. I mean, as someone who is currently writing two different AAA games, I love how complex narrative has gotten in video games. Um, it's made it more challenging with, you know, 2D side-scrolling platform games. Your character can only go where you say they can go. You can put up barriers in whatever path you would like them to go. Um, they can't side-scroll until they meet certain criteria. 
with an open world AAA narrative driven game, your player can experience the game in several different orders. Um, they kind of become a storyteller themselves in a way. Um, they can exhaust dialogue trees if they talk to the same character over and over again, which diminishes empathy and makes them feel like they're talking to an object instead of a person in the game. It makes them very aware that they're playing a video game, which you don't want. Um, but it's also opened up a lot of roles in the industry. There's a whole narrative department now. There are narrative directors. Um, there are narrative designers who are in control of the story progression from beginning to end, pacing, um, what story elements players encounter at what times. Um, it also makes it a challenge that I welcome to write a script in which you can't have any lines where you reference other parts of the story mm. because the player may not have encountered them yet. Um, it's challenging, but it's also a lot of fun. And it makes for a really cool, robust game, if you ask me. I'm oh, sorry, with the, with the writer as great as you, too, all of a sudden we have like emotional reactions yes. to the stories, which we didn't with the, the side-scrollers and the things like that. Well, Andrew, so let's talk to you a little bit about, uh, in bit by bit, you t you, your introduction is called The Purpose of Playing. Mm -hmm. We were talking about whether, I was, call I was saying that to me, playing Madden, which is not a narrative game, really, right? So I'm playing online against other people, and we're, we're not, it's not a storytelling game. Mm -hmm. So I, but that's different than like Red Dead Redemption, which I understand as a storytelling game. So what, what is it? What, what, what do games do? Are they storytelling? Are they playing? Is there a difference? Uh, it's a it's a, a medium that's potentially artistic, right? Um, not every film is great art, but there are films that are. Right. And I think video games work the same way, that there are tremendous works of art in video games. Uh, and there's a lot that really just aren't. But, okay, so that's interesting. But the interesting thing for me is like, what, what about the sports-oriented games that aren't narrative? I mean, there are other games that are not narrative, like, and there's nothing my, wrong with my that. My son plays the game, this game where these guys bloop around and they move real strange and they wrestle each other, and he yeah. loves that game, which is not a narrative game. I don't remember the name of that game. But it, it, not all games have to be narrative right. games, and not all blockbusters have to be. That's narrative. interesting, because, well, not all books all have to be narrative, but some aren't also. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, okay. No, I, I guess I'm trying to get at the, this is hard to articulate off the top of my head. Um, BJ, what, was that? what am I trying to say? <laughs> well, here's what I'm thinking of, and this, this is an academic kind of aside, but there are, there was, a, game studies is a field, an academic field, and there, there were two main uh, areas of thought, and they're called ludology and narratology. And ludology is, the, only, the, the fundamental thing that makes a game is its rules. A game has rules. Like, that's what makes a game. Um, narratology is the study of stories in games. And for a long time, the ludologists said, no, a game is a game. A game is not a story. Mm -hmm. um, and then more and more complex things came out. And so I think what we're getting at is a, a sports game like Madden um, is a game about rules. Here is football on the digital screen. But a game like Red Dead 2 or you know, other open world AAA types of games have robust characters and are able, using branching dialogue, to develop those kinds of stories. And so I think that's some, the tension sometimes, mm -hmm. is which the developer, if it's an indie developer or a giant AAA corporation, um, what is it trying to do with the gameplay? The other narrative that I run into a lot that I forgot to mention is that 
there are a tremendous number of YouTubers who just do content on Madden. Mm -hmm. So they're either telling stories about like games that they've played, mm -hmm. they're telling stories about what kind of content's coming into the game. And so I listen to those all day long, <laughs> okay? Because it's, they're more, they're happier than the news, right? Like something terrible is happening in the news, and I'm like, mm -hmm. but there's a new release in, for Ultimate Legends in Madden, and yeah. Joe Montana's a quarterback. You're like, mm -hmm. so does that happen with other games too? Is that a narrative? There's a narr there's a soup a meta narrative that's happening yeah. with games all the time. Yeah, all over the place. Okay. Yeah. If only I had played more games. <laughs> if only I had been better at them, Whitney. <laughs> Maybe I need to play Madden with you. Um, I guess one of the things I'm curious about is, I mean, you were talking about Brittany, like that when people are playing a game, we don't want them to remember that they're playing a game. And when we see stories about games, one of the tropes is kind of the moment when you realize it isn't a game. It's all real. <laughs> like the stakes are actually totally different than you thought. And why is that such a common, why is that a recurring device of storytelling? Why do, and why do stories, I mean, there's the question about are game stories. And then there's also the question of why do so many stories contain games? I love that question. I think for everybody who makes games, we want to get as close to the, well, for everybody who makes narrative games, we want to get as close to the players again. We want to put them in the game as much as possible. And so there are games out there about the player being pulled into the game. Mm. I'm thinking of a game called Simulacra, where the premise is you find a lost phone, and the whole game takes place on like an Android interface. Um, so you're scrolling through the phone for clues, um, figuring out what happened to the person who owned the phone. Um, and um, at the very beginning of the game, you hit one of those boxes that says, like, yes, accept the terms and conditions. And the game gains access to your computer files. And it is looking for your name. Uh, and it, if it finds your name, it will name you, like, three quarters of the way through the game. And then completely wipe your game, not your computer, don't panic, the game. <laughs> it will erase the game and all of its memory from your computer so that your files are still secure. Um, but that might be the scariest, I've never played it, but I did see a streamer play it and it named him and he absolutely panicked. Wow. Um, so there are a lot of games out there like that that focus on you know the, the scary element of like, oh, we're in the room with you. Um, there's... What was the other one I was thinking of? Oh, it's called the Watson Scott test. Um, and it uses binaural audio or surround sound audio in your headphones. Um, and it'll have things like, it, it'll, it'll make you take an SAT-esque test. And one of them will say, are you alone in your house? And you'll say yes. And it will say, are you sure? <laughs> and then you'll hear a door close behind you and you're like, oh my goodness, what is happening? <laughs> um, I, th I mean, I think that's, it's so much fun to play with as a game developer. Just stepping beyond the console and the screen. Well, speaking of games and entering the real world, or at least the fictional world, there's a game in your book, and I wonder if you could read to us from the book and talk to us about that. I would be happy to. Um, so in my book, The Jump, um, which is about four... Well, The Jump is basically national treasure if you replace Nicolas Cage with four teenagers taking down an oil refinery. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it follows four teenagers. Um, this book is written from four different points of view, all first person. And each of them are pursuing these clues. Um, They're all amateur cryptologists. Um, cryptology is, is um, the decoding of digital clues. And in this case, they are using it in a scavenger hunt. It's a mysterious puzzle. The prize is power and influence. And things get very high stakes, very scary, very quickly. 
Um, so I want to read to you a chapter from the character Han, who is the team's cartographer. So he is very familiar with the Seattle, this is in Seattle, underground. Um, he can tell you what is under your feet, wherever you are in the city, um, and the history of what is under your feet. <laughs> I take a deep breath and my eyes flutter awake. My jaw hurts. I think I was grinding my teeth in my sleep. Where am I? What time is it? I'm staring at the roof of my car and what the hell is that obnoxious snoring behind me? I, looked, I look in my rearview mirror to find Spider, that is another teammate, sprawled unglamorously over my back seat like a wet blanket. I can smell that cheese, warmed by his body heat. Disgusting. <laughs> the cheese was one of the clues. I reach behind my seat and tap his leg and he stirs. The, storing, the snoring stops, but he goes still again. I jostle him a little harder this time and he startles awake. Oh, what the hell? Yaz, who? He locks eyes with me in the rearview mirror. Oh, Han, don't scare me like that. What time is it? Where's Yaz? Another teammate. I glance over at the passenger seat, look back up at him, and shrug before pulling out my phone and texting her. No idea where she went, but I know she knows how to maneuver, how to survive, how to hide. Hey, you okay? And then I wait. Spider writes himself, groggily holding a hand to his head. He reaches under his shirt with his free hand and scratches under the elastic of his binder. Hey, look, he says with a yawn. The scanner app finally decided to load. He leans over my shoulder and holds the phone about a foot from my face. I read it quietly as he reads it aloud. The next clue. You've proven your worth. Now prove your dedication. Take back the top. One last evaluation. Countless lives for Fortune 5 on the stock exchange. Kick a can, burn a barrel, bang a drum, be the change. Welcome to the end, your final destination. A knife in the heart of an evil corporation. Well, that's the most ominous shit I've ever read, he says, <laughs> retreating into the back seat to pour over the puzzle some more. I've got it already, though. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. So I understand that that puzzle came from, uh, or was inspired by something on 4chan. And, um, and I also understand that the final part of that puzzle was not yet solved. I was fascinated. Tempted to play myself. Um, but... <laughs> So the story is also set in Seattle, of course, a place with a rich history of protest. And, and for these characters, the game is really synonymous with reality. And there's no differentiation between the consequences in the game and in, in real life. And with that in mind, I was curious about your thoughts on whether we can play as a way to make real social change and improve real life, or, or if that's kind of wishful thinking. Yeah, so in the book, the corporation Round World is... Um, installing a, a, um, uh, a location for their company um, over the top of one of the main characters' community garden. Um, their mom runs the community garden. And so, um, I mean, there's no firmer expression of them saying, you know, screw the environment, we're putting in this huge building um, to further the agenda of finding oil. Um, so when I was thinking about who would go up against a corporation like this, this big, scary, multinational, owns all of South Lake Union and Seattle corporation, 
And I thought four teenagers playing a game would be the least likely <laughs> people to win against such a thing. Um, but I also wanted this book to be about protest and how one can support a protest without necessarily being on the front lines, even though that's very important. Um, after I had my son, I realized that I am important to someone enough that I would protect myself in that situation and I wouldn't probably be on the front lines of a protest. But there are still ways that you can support the causes that you love without being at the front. Um, my other characters in the book, one of them has extreme sensory uh, sensitivities. And so he also is like, yeah, the front lines are not for me. Um, someone else is working in a restaurant where there are undocumented workers that they hold dear. And they are like, I will not put them in jeopardy putting my face on, a, you know, in a newspaper for this cause. Um, another one is a half black, half white teenage boy, Jax, whose mom is like, I am not allowing you to go toe to toe with the police. I'm sorry. Uh, and so all of them find their way to fight for what they believe in. And they do so through this game, through cryptology. And when I'm making games, when I'm writing what I write, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be at Insomniac Games where they support people coming forward and saying, hey, this is wonderful what we're doing, but we could be more accessible, and here's how. Or have you considered a player who is playing like this? Or this player who might not understand the social connotations of this line of dialogue? Can we make this clearer? Can we add provisions for characters who play in different ways, from different perspectives, from different backgrounds, with different needs? Um, and I think even that is propelling forward evolution in gaming to support everyday people and players of all kinds. So it's really, really cool to see that kind of change being made through play. And as an aside, I think play is super, super important for adults. My toddler, for my toddler, we read a bunch of parenting books. None of them prepare you for parenting, 100%. Uh, but a lot of them stress that learning for toddlers is done through play. And I don't think that ever really goes away. Like somehow we have this idea that play is learning for children. It's also learning for adults. Uh, thank you, I agree with that. Um, Andrew, uh, we were talking about in, in your book, Bit by Bit, How Video Games Transformed Our World, you write about the art question, which we were talking about a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. So I wanted you to go into more, you said, you know, some video games can be art and some aren't, but I would like you to talk about more like what would make them art or what does make them art when they reach that level. Mm -hmm. And then I, th I would like to talk, if maybe this is too hard to do at the same time, maybe after that, I think a lot, and I'm writing some about what happens when you, the individual consumer, take a game, make it your own, but can you make art or a really important thing in your life out of something that's created by a corporation mm -hmm. that is trying to make money off of you? Mm -hmm. You know, there's a dissonance there. That's right. Could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, I'll do my best. Um, it's not up to me what art is. Um, I have my particular value systems. There are uh, values that I look for in creative uh, texts like a video game or a, or a novel or a poem. Uh, I, I'm interested in, in art that raises questions instead of trying to answer them. I'm interested in art that um, moves us closer toward uh, equity and social justice. I'm interested in a whole lot of different things. And, and those, th those works of art are out there. Um, that's not every movie. That's not every video game. That's not every film. Um, other people, and I have absolutely no problem with this, their values, what they look for in art, um, might be more escapist. Um, 
you know, let's shoot bigger and bigger monsters with bigger and bigger guns. Um, and that's a whole lot of fun, and I enjoy that too. Uh, Beowulf is three successfully larger, or, uh, successfully larger boss fights. You know, like this has always been going on. Um, and I, I don't claim to be like my idea of what art is is right, and the other forms are wrong. No, like that, that joy is important too. Um, so it's what, whatever your value system is, whatever you think is artistic, that's artistic. Um, I want you as, as players, uh, as people interacting with media, as, as thinkers in the world, to run toward your own weirdnesses. Um, be, be the weirdest version of you that you are, and then find that. Find the people who are, who are communicating with you on that level. Um, video games can, can certainly do that, and movies can certainly do that. Um, that, that to me is, is what, what art does, is, is it connects us. Um, the art that I connect to isn't necessarily going to be the art that you connect to. And that's awesome. Like, that's super cool. BJ, what's your take on this art question? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm happy that fundamentally, I think, the fundamental question, can video games be art, is answered. Because it wasn't for a while. Mm. Um, they were purely low culture. Um, and I think culture, American culture, has evolved enough that the answer is yes, they can be. Um, and that I don't think there's a lot of debate around that now. And to the point, and it is economic in some extent, like I forget how much larger the video game industry, it's something like six times the film industry, which is hard to imagine in some ways. My battery died, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. One heart down. <laughs> so I was saying that video games are indeed art, um, and that our culture has seemed to come and accept that. Um, and again, the video game industry is, I believe, six times larger than the film industry in terms of revenues, which is amazing. And we, we just see it in pop culture stuff. Now that The Last of Us TV show is out there. Mm -hmm. The Super Mario movie is out right now and has far exceeded everything. The D&D movie that was just out far exceeded everything. Like, in some ways, nerds are kind of Cooler than they were at some point. But what are some specific examples of games that you think do reach that level? And you're talking about games that were made into movies, but then the movies being considered up, the game, do you think those games themselves count there? Yes, absolutely. It, like, rightly or wrongly, one definition I've seen that I've liked um, is if the game makes you cry. It's as simple as that. And there is, uh, uh, it's a popular, but very small, and it's a weird experience, but I'm gonna uh, recommend it to you. It's by Passage, um, it's by Jason Rohrer, and it was a game, it's exactly five minutes long, and it looks super pixely and uh, blocky. If you've never played it, go download it. Um, I read many, you know, many commentators at the time saying it was the first video game that made them cry, and I won't explain to you why that is. But um, I've read that argument before, and I find that one uh, is accurate. Um, and personally, I wrote an interactive fiction um, in, and released it in 2021. It's called And Then You Come to a House Not Unlike the Previous One. And it's, it's like an old text adventure where you, where you type in things, um, type in commands. And you get, it was a competition, and you actually get feedback from random people on the internet. And my favorite comment was, this made me cry heart emoji. <laughs> I 
love like the weird games that you were talking about earlier. Um, I have played games where you start the game believing you're playing a certain type of game, and by the time you get to the end, you are playing a completely different genre. So there is a kind of famous now game called Doki Doki Literature Club. Mm -hmm. yeah. I've heard of this. <laughs> um, it is done in the style of the cutesy, chibi, Japanese anime. Um, everything is pink and purple. There are girls in skirts with ponytails and bows, and it's set in a school. It looks like a dating sim, a traditional dating sim. And this is not a spoiler because it is in the description of the game. It gives a warning and says it is rated for, you know, not M, but it's, it's got mature content, including horror, blood, all sorts of... <laughs> it gives you a fair warning at the very beginning. And it also breaks the fourth wall in kind of a scary way. Um, so by the end of the game, you're like absolutely terrified when you thought you were starting playing a Japanese dating simulator. Um, there is also... Um, oh, there are two games I can think of where you play through actual hand-drawn art. Um, there's a game called Cuphead. Uh, I'm yeah. sure most of you know what that is. Yeah. Uh, they actually hired original artists from like way back in the day when um, everything was, you know, the, the, everything was done on slides. <laughs> um, there's um, like oil painting kind of style done in the background, and then there are cartoons over the top of it. Think Bugs Bunny. Think Looney Tunes. Mm -hmm that kind of art style, and the whole game is played through that. There's also a game where you play through several different watercolor landscapes. It's called Greece, G-R-I-S, okay. um, and you play through the five stages of grief through this mm. beautiful watercolor landscape. Um, yeah, those are my examples. And the music in Cuphead, like yes. music in video games adds so much to the artistic experience. Absolutely. It seems like, Andrew, one of the, the things that you said in your book that I found moving and that made me kind of want to go back to playing video games was about sort of how they had become more accessible. But that seems like one of the things that has made this narrative expansiveness and complexity possible, like the greater artistic capacity. Mm -hmm. um, so we want to go to the audience for questions. But first, Andrew, I wonder if you can close this out with reading a little bit from bit by bit. Sure. Um, the section you asked me to read is like the one sad part of the book. <laughs> well, since you have been insisting on joy today, which I so appreciate, if you want to choose... No, I, I, I think this is, this is fascinating. Um, this is from the chapter on World of Warcraft. Uh, small game came out a few years ago. Has anyone heard of it? <laughs> little indie project that a couple of people were working on. On December 12, 2009, in the guest bedroom of a rented bungalow in Baton Rouge, I began a free 10-day trial of World of Warcraft. I had recently accepted uh, a two-year position at a venerable literary magazine based at Louisiana State University, but circumstances beyond my control made the job miserable. Logging onto WoW and battling monsters became my way of unwinding after another workday spent being berated for things that had nothing to do with me. The game provided a necessary form of escape. I enjoyed it so much that I continued to play even after my job there mercifully ended and I moved back to Philadelphia. A few months later, a former colleague on the tiny staff of that magazine drove his Jeep the wrong way on the I-10 highway for at least 15 minutes. He head-on and killed forever, as Dennis Johnson might have put it, four young people returning home from an evening in New Orleans. The authorities identified his charred body from his dental records. I had been in that Jeep several times, often discussing the hyper-competitive endgame elements of World of Warcraft, which I did not yet understand. 
my colleague had been the top-ranked player on his server, a feat that required hours of daily grinding and an unthinkable, perhaps even unbalanced, persistence. Spending four out, 40 hours or more each week in the game was not unheard of among hardcore raiders. I've since wondered if there was some connection between my friend's obsession with that game and the apparent mental illness that led to this immense tragedy. Since first logging onto World of Warcraft on that muggy December evening in Louisiana, I spent in excess of 64 days, 11 hours, and 45 minutes in the virtual world of Azeroth before canceling my monthly subscription. That was far more time than I had devoted to any other video game in my life. I kept playing, even though I could never fully divorce my enjoyment of that game from the reasons I first came to it, or from my sadness about my friend's too short life and the others he took with him. All I have to show for those two months of my life are a poorly geared shadow priest named Bootzilla Jenkins and lingering questions about why I dedicated so much time to painstakingly cultivated, cultivating an online alter ego. Why exactly had I found World of Warcraft so engaging and even addictive? We're going to take audience questions here next, so be thinking of them. Uh, I have a quick question, though. So when I talk about games with like uh, friends in, who are academics, like sociologists or psychiatrists, they always talk about like, yeah, you'll enjoy the game, but you're also being manipulated by the game, right? And games are made to make you want to have certain. Mm -hmm. you, know, you get a, you get an award. You know, I open yeah. a pack. You know, the, the, there are things happening in your brain. You're getting positive. Uh, I'm forgetting the names of the nice things that happen in your brain. They have chemical me names, right? So, huh? Endorphins, right? Yes, all that stuff. So how does that fit in with the gaming experience, too? Because I sit around fantasizing about how I could play more Madden. Like, you know, like, could I, I, I would do it all day. It's much, it's much more fun than writing. You know, like, is, that a, is there a dark side to that gaming in that sense? Have any of you, I mean, obviously, Andrew's just read about it, but what about BJ and Brittany? BJ, well, I'll call you out. <laughs> That's twice now. <laughs> I think as long as you're aware of it, uh -huh. it like and aware of I the... I could quit if I wanted. Right. <laughs> I mean, when exactly. Well, in Andrew's book, he likens it to the same tricks casinos use in, in that same yeah. kind of, yeah. of darkness. Um, and so it's, it is, it's a delicate balance and it's why personally as a father like I try to monitor what my kid is doing because it's easier in some games to just see the manipulativeness mm -hmm. of them um, and so it is definitely something that needs to be considered when people do play games if, but if I, if, I, sorry, if I may follow that up the if we get back to the origins of those arcade cabinets they're designed to have us putting another quarter in and another quarter in and another yep. quarter in. Yep. and now with the uh, subscription model it's the same thing how do we keep the the little rewards coming one after the other one after the other long enough for people to resubscribe put in another half hour another minute another daily quest another you know plant another vegetable you know um, and, and it's all about making us put more time into to the game. I think every entertainment, I think the goal of every entertainment company and every entertainment medium is to keep you playing one more game mm -hmm. or turning one more page. Or even That's the, true, the novelists do this too. We <laughs> <laughs> do too. Uh, you know. I mean, even the food industry, they're, they're engineering food so that you take one more bite, you know? But I think with 
the difference between video games and all of those other mediums is the other mediums only focus on one form of sensory input. With books, it's your eyes and your brain. Or in, in the case of audiobooks, it's your ears and your brain. With video games, you've got audio input, you've got visual stimuli, you've got physical input, if you've got a haptic controller especially. You know, there are so many other senses for them to, to feed on. Um, and so that's why I think video games can be especially addictive. And yeah, as a parent, as a, a person who wants to be responsible with your time, it's something to think about. Um, my son is two and a half, and he already plays video games with us. We give him an, a controller with no batteries. <laughs> Works like a charm. It's like an hour of entertainment. <laughs> um, but we have agreed as a family to keep our consoles in the living room. And our rule as he grows up is going to be if you are playing an online game and you are comfortable you know, saying whatever it is you say to your friends online for us to hear, so are we. Then it's, it's good for us, too. Please uh, uh, go and buy the books of these authors, because that is why people have book festivals, is so that people <laughs> will buy books. Um, and, and they're terrific books. You'll enjoy them all. Um, and for those of you who are looking for all of these, we maybe never had an episode with so many references. Um, <laughs> and we will attempt to put together a show page with everything you've referenced, dear God. Wow. Um, so, uh, if anyone wants to help us, please write me. Um, but yeah, thank you so much to our three terrific guests, Andrew Irvin, Brittany Morris, and BJ Best, and to you, our audience, for joining us here in Columbia. Thanks so much. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This episode was produced by Anne Knickendorf and Sheree Brizendine. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. We want to thank the Unbound Book Festival for hosting us once again. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com. The Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll post a link to everything we referenced this week on Facebook at FNFPod, on Twitter at FNFTalk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can also find video of this panel on our Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube and IGTV channels and on our website at fnfpodcast.net. We'll provide links to all this stuff in the show notes and we'll be tweeting and posting about it during the week. Happy reading! <laughs>